This is Truth Jihad Radio, where we discuss all of the issues that are too important to be covered by the corporate-controlled mainstream media, or even to be discussed in the universities. If you like this kind of radio, please support it by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Hello. Welcome. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio, broadcast out of an old ice cream trailer parked somewhere in the woods of western Wisconsin. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking with the most interesting people I can find, telling the most untold but most important and powerful truths. And tonight we have a fantastic show coming up. In the uh, second hour, Mona Sheikh, uh, the founder of Minority Reports, which is a comedy outfit in Hollywood, is coming on to, well, talk about what she does. Uh, she fights for social and political causes from civil rights to, quote unquote, uncivil male behavior issues amongst fellow comics. Uh, she's an, a Me Too comic, according to some folks. She grew up in a conservative Pakistani Muslim family and has uh, very, very different views of social issues than I do. And I don't know what she thinks about the red pill issues we talk on this sh- talk about on the show. So that should be an interesting conversation. First hour, well, um, you know, many of us have wanted to, and some of us actually have, written letters to our family and friends about the COVID issues and vaccine issues that I talk about on this show, but I've, I never talk about on YouTube because I will be deplatformed if I do. But you got to talk about them somewhere, and you sometimes feel like you need to reach out to your family when they're getting nothing but propaganda that could put them in jeopardy. So many of us have exchanged emails and things like that, gotten on Zoom with them, and often been frustrated <laughs> trying to deal with the pervasive, let's call it, uh, misinformation that the mainstream media is drumming into people's heads. Well, my guest this hour, Tom Bradenbach, wrote, quote, a letter to my family and friends, which I think might be the best article I've yet seen on the whole COVID slash vaccine issue. It's absolutely brilliant and very well documented, uh, very much in line with the high quality of Tom's work in scholarship on Rene Girard and his uh, interesting philosophical anthropology, um, Tom's work on the 9-11 human sacrifice, his poetry. Uh, it's all very, very great stuff. And this letter is is just absolutely fantastic. So, hey, it's great to have you back. Tom Bradenbach, how are you, Tom? I'm doing all right, Kevin. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So when I saw you'd written a letter to your family and friends, I thought, hmm, that's that's interesting. And I kind of read a little bit of it. And and before long, I realized just, you know, how high quality this is. I'm, and I guess you just made this your first uh, Substack post. So did when you sat down to write this, were you really just writing to your family and friends? Or did you realize that this probably deserved a wider audience? I started out just talking to my family and friends, um, and then (laughs) it took about 
two and a half or three weeks to write the letter. And it was during a time period. So much is coming out and um, so much even has come out since posting a letter. And so I first sent it to family and friends and then posted it on a new Substack column. It's absolutely fantastic. And I imagine that if you were to make a YouTube just reading this letter aloud, it would last about a day or two at most before they took it down. Why do you think the censorship has become so extreme? I don't think there's ever been this kind of censorship, except maybe in wartime occasionally. Uh, why has the COVID issue uh, coincided with the destruction of the First Amendment? Well, I think it relates to that there's so much criminality going on and that the elite powers that be have so much blood on their hands and they don't dare allow us to have the free exchange of information that we had even a short time ago. Yeah, it seems like in the past, they had a harder time arguing for completely shutting us down because what we were saying would have, the only real two interpretations out there would be, if we're right, let's say about 9-11, then this is a really important issue that we need to wake people up about. There's just no argument uh, against uh, people who are telling the truth about 9-11 being a false flag, inside job, coup d'etat. And the other perspective on that, of course, would be, oh, well, these people are just crazy conspiracy theorists. They're just paranoid. But then they would be harmless, right? I mean, if people are just ranting in, parano in a paranoid way about that kind of issue. You can't really come up with a good excuse about why you have to shut them down unless you want to admit that they're right. And that's the subtext of Cass Sunstein's work when he said someday it may be necessary to outlaw conspiracy theories. But in the meantime, as of 2008, when he started writing this, uh, what we should do is have the government cognitively infiltrate conspiracy groups in order to, quote unquote, disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories. He never explained why it was so important to take down the 9-11 truth movement, if indeed everything the truth movement was saying was so wrong. So they had a hard time arguing for censorship with that kind of issue. But with COVID, they can use this metaphor of the viral spread of conspiracy theories and then say that we're a threat to public health because we're discouraging people from being vaccinated. Uh, and suddenly they have uh, an argument you know, for people who believe the mainstream line. So it almost makes you wonder if it was planned that way. And, and it, now, how, how paranoid is that to think that, you know, they might have actually thought about, wow, you know, if we have a big pandemic, we can finally do what Cass Sunstein said might eventually be necessary and actually outlaw conspiracy theories. Well, the trajectory since 9-11 has been increasing authoritarianism. And this does seem to me to be the second shoe to drop. And whenever you look into how carefully orchestrated 9-11 appears to have been as a, an, uh, a black op, if you will, um, nothing would surprise me about these people. I wouldn't put anything past them. And I think we're in fact compelled to reason from a position that is Machiavellian in 
that it looks at this as a plan, as part of a plan. And RFK Jr.'s book on Fauci has just come out, and it it uh, documents. I've only just started getting into it, but it documents the various exercises that were conducted since I believe the year 2000 planning for this sort of thing and with Gates and Fauci as the front men and as RFK Jr. has pointed out in his interviews none of these plans really entailed in these pandemic exercises entailed ways to make people better mobile hospitals you know encouraging people to live healthy lifestyles and better diets and making sure people have vitamins and, and, you know, making sure black people, for example, have vitamin D deficiencies and treating things in a, in a rational way as you would a pandemic to make people better and to get past it. They've all been geared toward turning the United States into something of a surveillance police state. And that's what we're seeing happening. So this does appear to, I mean, we'd be fools in the wake of nine 11 not to strongly suspect and make it our make it our operating theoretical principle that this is in fact planned, and I think it gives every indication of being planned. Yeah, I do too. And and your letter to your family and friends gets into evidence that the vaccines have a substantial potential downside, the risks and and dangers associated with them are clearly much greater than what we're hearing in the official discourse. And as far as how bad it could be, kind of the sky is the limit. And that really does make you wonder about this uh, hysterical public health rationale for inflicting the vaccines on everyone. Um, To what extent do you think that the people behind this campaign to vaccinate everybody are just Uh, being um, diligently pursuing what they see as the right public health strategy. And I know some doctors who are of that mindset. And to what extent do you think that some of them may actually be part of something more nefarious that could involve uh, callous disregard of the dangers of vaccines or perhaps even embracing them for Malthusian reasons? Well, I think probably most of the doctors who are urging their patients to get these are not into anything nefarious. They're just following what they, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed by this. There is a public health issue. Um, it's not as though, you know, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that there's no virus and things like that. Um, <clears throat> there's just too much evidence as far as I'm concerned that there is a, a you know, dramatic public health issue that, needs to be addressed. So I think most doctors are acting in good faith and they, I don't think they're as informed and they're certainly not as informed about what certain doctors like Peter McCullough and Ryan Cole are pointing out a host of other doctors as well, but, but they seem to be at the forefront of this and uh, Geert Vandenbosch um, uh, the scientist, the vaccinologist, and also um, Robert Malone. And these are heroic figures. Where would we be without these figures? I shudder to think. And Mike Eden, you could add to that list. And there are other people too, Christina Parks. Um, so 
those seem to be people, you know, that I, that, that those are the people that I've been keen off of and McCullough, especially, and I just don't think most doctors know. Um, but I think when you get to the level of a Fauci, it's pretty hard to, um, think that there's not something nefarious going on there. So you say you started RFK Jr.'s book on Fauci, which apparently is shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, which is a good sign. Uh, yeah. So what, what is, uh, how far are you through that book? I've only paged through some of it, and I, I read the introduction and part of the first chapter, and then I've just looked through other parts of it, and I've listened to a number of interviews with I mean, it's a huge book and, you know, I've, I've had to take a pause in, in my other research, which I'm trying to narrow down on, you know, finally finish my 9-11 book. Um, so I don't know how much of the, how quickly I'm going to be able to make it through this Fauci book, but so far it's excellent. And just the introduction alone is, is quite compelling. And what do you think about the overlap between the sort of interpretation that what this is really about is kind of a, a medical authoritarianism um, and domestic uh, population control and, and thought control uh, versus the interpretation that we're entering an age of pervasive biological warfare, that militaries have constantly been trying to get the uh, the advantage over other militaries looking for new strategies and weapons, and that there is a train of thought right now uh, that's represented by some very high-level people uh, that biological warfare, especially uh, economically-oriented biological warfare, and perhaps also in the not-too-distant future, uh, genetically-targeted uh, biological warfare are the wave of the future. And, you know, that's something that I think a rational person would worry about having looked at the information that was coming out in the 1990s, especially sort of the late 1990s and then right after 9-11 and anthrax. Um, one would suppose that there, you know, there is this biological warfare community worldwide, which has a vested interest in directing money and resources into its own coffers. And the anthrax inside job certainly succeeded there. It uh, raised the budget uh, of the U.S. biowar sector 800 percent almost overnight, even though <laughs> it, it was all to protect against a threat that came right out of a U.S. biowar lab. Uh, I, I'm yeah. still scratching my head over that. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know. I, I just noticed that to me the most, the single most powerful piece of writing about this whole COVID uh, period that we're living through is uh, Ron Unz's ebook, Interpreting COVID as a uh, blowback from, from a biowar attack against China and Iran, masterminded by people like Robert Cadillac, who Trump avoided as his biowar czar. Cadillac is a lifelong rabid advocate of using biological warfare, especially economically targeted biological warfare. So Trump appoints Cadillac uh, somebody takes out China's chicken supply and pork supply, most of their meat supply in 2018 and 2019. And then <laughs> on a Chinese New Year in 2020, suddenly this 
pandemic explodes out of Wuhan, the transit hub for all of China, exactly on Chinese New Year. Uh, you, you know, you don't really have to connect too many dots to see something there, especially when the next place the pandemic goes is Qom Iran, and it seems to selectively target top Iranian officials. Uh, and somehow mm-hmm. that aspect of it has been totally blacked out of not only the mainstream media, but even most of the alternative media that's covering all of this criticism of Fauci and Bill Gates. And so I, I wonder whether we shouldn't be trying to sort of bring these two strands of analysis together. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm not that familiar with the UNS um, argument, but I would say that we certainly can't rule any of those possibilities out. I think that they all have to be looked at seriously, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. We're definitely in some kind of bio-authoritarianism. Um, that's, that I don't think there's any room to doubt. And it would make a lot of sense that this is also fitting in with, you know, with the Department of Defense and those military drills that they've been planning for a couple of decades and running exercises, anticipating it and with coronaviruses. The thing that confuses me is, you know, given what you've said, is we were cooperating with the Chinese in the creation of this. So I tend to wonder, you know, to what degree is it a unified exercise by the global elite? And especially with how the United States has moved to the Chinese model of social control or is moving toward that model so rapidly in the face of this. So it's hard to say, you know, um, we can't really, quote unquote, blame China when we were the one, not we, I mean, the United States, the Fauci. This was research going on in U.S. labs. And only when it stopped being legal for it to go on here was it shipped overseas. So all those agendas could be at play. Indeed. Well, when I think about how, how this could be, you know, wh- where it could be coming from, I, I think about you know, the model of how power works in the world that I've developed uh, over, well, especially the last decade and a half of actually having to think about it a lot as I do this alternative analysis, is that you have a bunch of these sort of mafiosi types. Uh, you know, the top level mafiosi types are, are basically the, the deep state. Peter Dale Scott defines that as the politically uh, motivated and interested uh, super rich who have so much money that they're above the law, as far above the law as the underworld is below the law. So they're, they, they commit crimes as a matter of course. And so these mafiosi billionaire types kind of are sitting around uh, trying to grab more money and power all the time for themselves. And yeah, I, yeah and I, I don't think there's like one global uh, group that's unified. I don't think any of any of them are completely unified at all. I mean, pick any mafiosa group, you know, pick the, you know, the Chicago, you know, the Gambinos and the whoever else, these other, these crime families, all these crime families. Yeah. They sort of have one godfather who sort of solves the disputes and stuff, but they're all, each one is always trying to maximize its market share and they know how far they can go. And uh, ultimately, every now and then, a, a war breaks out between the crime families. Okay, so, you know, so I, seems... I tend to agree with you. It's not unified. Um, but it, what's 
striking to me, though, is the degree to which it's appearing unified with how these vaccine companies, these Western vaccine companies have permeated so much of the market, now not Russia and China, but permeated so much of the rest of the world. And the idea that it's a global American empire enterprise, I mean, I think the analyses that trace what's going on back to the WEF are, are compelling. Um, they seem to be the ones announcing the agenda that's being followed and that the so-called liberal governments of Canada and the United States and much of Europe are following um, verbatim. So this does seem to be some kind of unified Western imperial effort in the wake of the collapse of the conventional military effort in well, Afghanistan, for instance, right? So the 9-11 wars, the war on terror has exhausted its potential. And now it's this new stage of Western imperialism that kind of at the moment has a woke flavor in the United States. And it's this biofascism, essentially, that is the next phase of the imperial project. It's the next grand strategy. That's what makes the most sense to me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that makes sense, too. And I would add to that the kind of analysis that I heard recently from Michael Hudson. I interviewed him on his book, Super Imperialism, and he studies the economic clashes behind the clashes of rival empires. Uh, and in particular, he studies the rise of what he sometimes calls the American empire. We could call it the Anglo-Zionist empire, the Western bankster empire, whatever you want to call it. The uh, World War II saw had two victors and everybody else was a loser. The two victors were the U.S. and the USSR. And uh, the U.S. Proved, proved the main victor and the this empire based on the American dollar, which forces every country in that empire to essentially pay tribute to the masters of the American dollar uh, who then use that tribute to build military bases all over the world and to create the world's biggest military machine to sustain their empire. And that that's the big expanding aggressive empire that's now being challenged by the rise of a number two power, China, which is now in mm-hmm. alliance with Russia. That alliance is developed because the, the Anglo-Zionist American dollar empire has been so obnoxious in its behavior to both sides. And so that geopolitical situation, it seems to me, is one in which this this Anglo-American dollar empire, which is run on usury, that is by private bankers who create the entire currency out of nothing at interest and use the excess, the surplus that comes into them for social control purposes, whether it's mind control, brainwashing, whether it's military control, guns and weapons to point at your head. Either way, they're controlling you that way and they're controlling everybody that way. So that's one model. The other model is China, which does, as you say, have a draconian sort of social control system. But very importantly, it has a public banking system, which is the reason that China's economic growth is so far beyond anything the West can muster, because the West takes all of its economic surplus, throws it into more profits for the billionaire banksters and weapons, whereas China takes its surplus and plows it into infrastructure for the people and to develop not only China, but other countries as well. And that Chinese model threatens the power of the banksters who run the Western empire. So there is a very serious clash. And that would explain why you would have 
uh, threats and perhaps actual biological attacks against China as a routine thing you just expect. And so uh, that, that's where I, I think the people who argue that because China is kind of totalitarian in its social control system, then the West is also becoming totalitarian. And that means the West is somehow like China and in league with China. That's totally wrong. You know, whenever there's a war, both sides become authoritarian. And so we're seeing, I think, a likely war scenario, uh, a Thucydides paradox or Thucydides trap scenario as number two power China rises to challenge number one power, the Anglo-Zionist bankster dollar empire. And I think the biological warfare that's emerging and we'll probably probably haven't even barely seen the beginning of it yet is going to be the pervasive characteristic of that war. Probably one of the biggest fronts of, in which that war is fought. Uh, so, so that's, that's my analysis. And I can imagine how the Western side might've thought that there would be advantages to them, even if this attack on China boomeranged and hit the whole world as it has. And maybe they wanted that. And maybe they made that happen because it's actually going to create some possible long-term advantages for them as well. So that, but that, that geopolitical analysis seems to me it's so absent. I noticed though, that Tom, you, you cited a uh, very interesting geopolitical thinker, uh, Giorgio uh, Agamben. Uh, so tell me a little about him and his thought about the biosecurity state. Well, he is, I, I got led to him through Girard. They're similar thinkers in a way. They have a different vocabulary for describing what is in effect the same phenomenon, which Girard calls the scapegoat phenomenon. And Agam then approaches it from the terminology of the homo sacred, the sacred man, the one whom it's okay to kill. And I think what Agamben does is he kind of positions Girard's theory in maybe a more academically palatable, um, not expressly Christianized um, vocabulary. And so he's had a warmer welcome in the, in the academy than Girard. But he is essentially stating that the homo saker is this figure from um, Roman law, the man it's okay to kill. The reason he's the sacred man, because only the gods can help him, was thought that's probably where the terminology came from. So he's, he, he is essentially the scapegoat. He's the outcast. And he's, he's cast out into bare life. Uh, and so this is what Agamben sees as the root of how, the, how states operate. And so many of the thinkers inspired by Agamben point out that um, one of the metaphors for the state or the sovereign is that of the wolf, or um, to use the biblical metaphor, the, the hunter of men, Nebuchadnezzar being the hunter of men. And the, this I find very compelling. And Agamben has written about, for instance, in Nazi Germany, the Jews and the gypsies and homosexuals and whoever, you know, political betray um, people were made into the homo sakers, those who were increasingly cast into their life. Um, out of this kind of civil life of the of the community, and those whom it became okay to kill, this is always a tendency of state, and it's the position from which, and it relates to 
theorists like um, Carl Schmitt and uh, Leo Strauss are our favorites, right? Yeah, um, yeah. They're very, yeah. You have to read about 9-11. Yeah, they're, they're very compelling theorists, though, as I've really read them and taken them seriously. They're on to something that we can't just dismiss. And I do think there's something about the nature of the state that Agamemnon is correct about it functioning in this manner, that it needs an enemy figure. And the enemy figure is both without and within. And the enemy figure within now, especially under the Biden administration or regime, uh, if you will. I mean, the stakes are so high. Things are so convoluted right now. We've never lived through a historical period. I think this is a more dynamic and dangerous period than even 9-11 led us into. And it's entirely predictable given 9-11 and our failure to adequately respond to that and reveal that, though, in in spite of the heroic efforts of so many to do so. Um, But is the Biden administration an administration or is it a regime? That's an open question. And I think that feeds into your question about, um, you know, it's the one we're not supposed to, to ask. It's the, it's the verboten one, you know, and it's one of the reasons there's so much censorship right now. It's not just the COVID thing. It's the election and the fact that we, we can't have faith in our elections anymore. And so there's so much at stake right now. There are just, seem to be so many guns drawn and pointed at each other in the old image of the Mexican standoff. Everybody's in, in our, so there's, to get back to Agamben, we're finding the enemy within among the vac- among the unvaccinated now. And I've never seen in my life a propaganda campaign designed within the United States to vilify one group of people more. And that has rendered people more hypocritical, especially the liberal side of the political aisle. You know, when you have from the New York times on estimate, 72% of younger black people in New York city, I think it's the ages of, 18 and 42, those between that age who are vaccine hesitant, as they say, you have about half of Hispanics. And so here you have a majority of people of color in the city and they've been rendered second class citizens. Like the rest of us unvaxxed, they can't go to museums. They can't dine indoors. They're not allowed to sit in the cafe. Where's Rosa Parks Um, when we need her? This is all completely hypocritical. It's completely anti-scientific. There's there's no scientific basis for any of this. So whatever's happening, they're trying to put us on to a a footing that I just see as very dangerous. It's a march into it's a march into authoritarianism that we're very well prepped for. Um, a, a, a totalitarian. I don't know if you know that thinker, Matthias. Um, I don't remember his name, but I've just gotten into him recently. But he's been, done a lot of interesting work on a totalitarian, uh, what he calls uh, ma- mass formation. And he's an expert in that. 
And he talks about how well primed we are in the wake of this, um, but also before it, for mass formation in our in our country. And he makes the distinction between um, typical dictatorships and totalitarianisms. So Hitler, for example, was a was not a typical dictatorship. It was a totalitarianism. And what we're heading into is not a t- typical dictatorship. It's a, it's a totalitarianism. And I think he's onto something. And as as tragic as as it is, I I you know I'm I'm afraid he's onto something. Well, you say in your letter that this new fascism or totalitarianism seems to be coming from the left more than the right. And you spent your whole life thinking that American fascism would come from the right. And suddenly that flipped. Uh, that, that's kind of mind boggling, isn't it? It's mind boggling. And I, it's, it's heartbreaking. And as I, it's it made it Im- almost impossible for me to communicate with so many of my friends and I've lost friends. Um, it, I, I mean, I hope, I hope they come back, but I have, I have lost some friends as a result of it. And, um, this professor's name is Matthias Desmond and he's a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent university in Belgium. Um, so D E S M E T. And I highly recommend, uh, Thaddeus uh, Kaczynski turned me on to him and he's on to something, this guy. And, um, Right. It, this is coming from the left. Whereas 9-11, the psychosis was coming from the right side of the political spectrum. It switched. It's coming from the left side of the political spectrum. Well, I, I think there was a little bit on the left, Tom, too, because the yeah. homo saker after 9-11 was the Muslim who you're allowed yeah. to, you know, to torture and rape and kill and so on, take yeah. to Guantanamo. Uh, and it wasn't just the flag waving right wingers that were programmed to act that way, but also the sort of the neo atheist community uh, led by these new atheists who said that, uh, you know, Islam is like the worst possible thing. You know, these, these Muslims are so dangerous. They basically just have to be eradicated. And that that was ostensibly from the left, you know, Christopher Hitchens embraced that. Right. There was some of it, but the prevailing winds were from the right. And there were, there were those on the left who joined right in with it, but the prevailing winds were from the right, the nationalism, was was from the right and the people who were the most difficult to talk to aside from those strident leftists the majority you know it was the people on the right and you know bush was president and it was flag waving and good old us of a and you know and now (laughs) it's it's switched of course even now there's people on the right who are you know on board with the program as well we're not getting any Republican pushback to speak of on this, these COVID mandates and these vaccine mandates. This is, this is, you know, one thing that keeps getting overlooked and it's overlooked even in a lot of the alternative discourse, there are some people doing heroic work. I like, for example, what Jimmy Dore on the left is doing. Um, but even he still toes the party line while these vaccines are good for you. They're going to help you prevent disease and death and Kevin the more I listen to the folks I named earlier McCullough and Cole and those 
Um, and the more that I look at the papers that they're referencing and the data out of the UK and also um, the, the expose is a really great resource, I think, too, and they need money. So I would encourage listeners to, to make it throw them a few bucks or pounds if you can, um, because they're an excellent publication about this. And it does seem to me that this vaccine is going to give us nightmares for years to come. And I think we could be entering into, well, that's what McCullough is saying when he quotes the former head of the American Medical Association saying we're entering a biological catastrophe. And that's what people don't seem to be getting. These vaccines are not, not only are they not safe and effective, perfectly safe and effective, they're dangerous and they're causing a 20-fold increase of signs of aggressive cancers. And now it does appear with a paper recently out of Sweden that the mechanism for that has been identified from an in vitro studies uh, study that shows that indeed the spike protein does penetrate the nucleus and it harms the protein that is responsible for mending our uh, DNA. And if our DNA can't be mended, then that increases our chances of cancer. So this is a vaccine that's causing our bodies to produce the spike proteins, which we were told weren't dangerous at first, and now we know they're dangerous. We were told they weren't going to enter the cell nucleus. Now we know they are, at least in the in vitro study. Now it could be, there could, you know, look, we have to be cautious about all this, but Ryan Cole is reporting that he's seen a 20-fold increase in his Idaho laboratory, medical laboratory, of these cancers, and they start, these, these, these spikes appear to start around six weeks after vaccination. And this is a shockingly early sign of trouble. So I think we may not have any idea what we've unleashed. And I have a gut feeling that it's much, much worse than anybody's, most anybody's talking about. And that raises the question of whether we'll ever figure this out. Like, will it become so clear that there's a medical catastrophe brewing or will the harms from these vaccines become so um, uh, impossible to ignore that it will break through into mass consciousness in the mainstream media, academia, and the medical profession? Or will they somehow be able to keep it covered up right up until, I mean, how, you know, what percentage of people would have to suffer what degree of harm before they couldn't cover it up anymore? And my first thought would be, well, it, you know, if it got very bad, surely the medical surveillance apparatus would catch it and they would try to deny it for a while, but they probably couldn't deny it for very long. And this would lead to, wow, a, a really crazy kind of scenario in which would they have to admit that the vaccine skeptics were right? Would they have to go into panic mode to try to deal with all of the problems that the vaccines caused? Of course, this is all hypothetical, but we do have a real world scenario a little bit like this that did happen when the 1950s polio vaccines were contaminated with monkey viruses that caused cancer 
and may have been responsible for a high percentage of all of the cancers between the mid-1950s and, and thereafter. Uh, according to uh, Ed Haslam's book on, uh, I think it's it's called like Dr. Mary and the Monkey Virus or something like that. Uh, he changed the name and I always get confused about the new name of that book. Uh, I think it's published by Trine Day. And it's it's one of those seemingly bizarre conspiracy theories that if you hear it summarized, especially if you're not initiated into these red pill issues, you would say, oh, that's completely insane. Because the, the, the thesis is that David Ferry, who was a key witness in the JFK assassination case brought by Jim Garrison in New Orleans, who died right before he was supposed to testify, was working on a lab uh, in at Tulane University with a bunch of uh, super secret, ultra classified researchers uh, dealing with the fallout of these monkey viruses that had created a huge wave of cancers uh, since the mid 1950s. And David Ferry's role in this was actually to try to weaponize them further and use it against Castro, et cetera, et cetera. He was he was CIA. Um, so uh, that book is I find that book pretty convincing. I think it almost certainly is correct that the, that really did happen and that some unknown but very large number of the cancers that occurred in the U.S. in the decades after the mid 50s were caused by the polio vaccines of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So but they completely covered it up. It was a one of those national security secrets where they'll kill however many people they need to, to make sure that it doesn't become public knowledge. And I'm wondering if something like that could actually happen with this or is there so much attention being paid to covid vaccines uh, that there's no way they could cover something like that up it's an open question and we know one thing for sure they're certainly going to try to cover it up they're already starting to do that you've heard of sads of course sudden adult um what is it sudden infant death syndrome sudden adult sids now we have sads sudden adult death syndrome. Well, you know, they're normalizing these sorts of things with these new things we've never heard of, right? Um, These new syndromes. Who's ever heard of sudden adult death syndrome? Well, now it's just being talked about as though it was always there. And so the media is going to be entirely complicit, you know, the corporate media, in covering it up. They're going to do everything they can to cover it up. We right. Athletes have always just fallen over dead while they're in the middle of playing soccer sure. games. Sure, <laughs> sure. And Wikipedia just suddenly stops counting them, you know, just for no reason, because it suddenly became passe to do so. Um, so they're going to make every effort to cover it up. And, you know, people don't want to admit they're wrong. And we are so polarized politically right now that for those people who've taken the vaccine, many of them, to admit they're wrong, they're just not inclined to do it. And because that's going to mean, you know, those Trump supporters were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're not going right. to do it. They, they, they would rather die than do it. Many of them, I yeah. think, would. So, so there, there's such intransigence there. And, and you know, you're the perfect person for me to float this thesis for because you've done so much work on Girard and related issues. It occurs to me that as we have this 
increase in sort of mutual scapegoating internally within the American empire here in the United States in particular, but throughout the West to some extent and the, and the Western empire that uh, this uh, typically, you know, what we see in, in the Girardian scenario, uh, the spread of, you know, what we Muslims call fitna or the kind of uh, chaos of the war of all against all based on mutual rivalries based on mutual, you know, desiring what others desire and so on. That gives rise to a kind of a, a mass social breakdown of a war of all against all. We sort of see that happening now, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. thing and all these other polarizing issues. Typically, yeah. according to Girard, this resolves itself when the whole society sort of turns on a scapegoat and lynches that scapegoat and that reunifies them. And the scapegoat is then retrospectively seen to have saved the society from this horrible chaos. And then that scapegoat, you know, the dead scapegoat that's been lynched pretty soon becomes remembered as some sort of divine figure. And they build a statue to him and they sacrifice chickens or whatever uh, to that, <laughs> that that deity every year. That, that's what Gerard thought paganism basically was. And it occurs to me that the stage has been set for resolving these uh, chaotic issues, this this war of all against all that's enveloping the United States and the West by turning it, uh, you know, in a war against this Russia, China, Iran bloc. Um, and they have the, you know, the conservatives are never a problem because the conservatives think with their gut and the gut is always tied into the ego and the social ego. So when the war starts, almost all the conservatives will start you know, beating their chests and waving their flags. So they're never a problem. The problem is the left. And we saw that after 9-11 when so much of the left saw what a farce that was, what a farce the, the WMD war in Iraq was and, and so on. And, and the left in, woke up to 9-11 truth in significant part. And uh, so that's where the anti-war movement mostly lives. And the, the critical part of society usually is on the left. And so if you're planning to have a war, you have to neutralize your left side and your peacenik side of your political spectrum. And they've done that. They've turned the left into, as you say, a bunch of fascist totalitarian goose stepping people who are only following orders. You know, so so they're set. They, They can wage war with China now and they can reunify the left, the right and everybody else by demonizing the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians or what have you. I I see that as almost a a conscious thing that looks like it's being orchestrated. Um, And most people don't understand this because they haven't read Girard, but you have. So what what do you think of that thesis? Well, things could be so volatile. You know, things are so volatile right now. I think a lot of the right is awake to the tricks that have been played. I, you know, I think there's more anti war sentiment in parts of the right right now uh, and there are than there is in the left um, especially with this you know whatever Biden is and this current regime it's um, I don't know I don't know what to expect I, there could be a very quick flip of I, I think there's just with Biden's approval being so down there could be a massive lurch rightward in this country. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. The people yeah. who are now enjoying scapegoating so much because they have their foot in the Trump supporters, not to mention 72% of the young black people in New York City and half of the Latino people. Um, but, you know, somehow they don't count because, you know, we're getting one up on 
the Trump supporters. Um, these people are just so eager to be, you know, have their turn right now. And it's shocking to see. It's shocking to see Don Lemon of CNN call for the unvaccinated not to be allowed to shop and just this, this bloodlust in these people's. And so there's such a revulsion now with so much that's passing for woke, whether fairly or unfairly, that I'm not sure you couldn't see things lurch in a hard way on the domestic front back to the right. Um, I don't know. Uh, and in terms of whether, we, you know, right now the United States is just in the hands of something that we've never seen before. And they could throw us at China. They could. And I'm, I'm definitely of the school where just because we are moving to the China model doesn't mean that the Chinese are the enemy here. And we have to be very careful how this sort of thing plays out. Um, not to be jingoistic and pretend we know what's going on um, with so many so things so fluid as they are, you know, or as fluid as they are. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, well, here's what, something I have to just uh, float by you, see, see what you think about this. I noticed this, this Kyle Rittenhouse saga has somehow hypnotized the country and everybody's gotten so excited about it. And it occurs to me that there's a passage, a couple of passages in Thomas Pynchon's novel, Gravity's Rainbow, that eerily seem to sort of uh, reflect uh, what's happening with this Kenosha kid, right? Did you read Gravity's Rainbow? Have you read that, Tom? No, I, no, I haven't. Yeah, many people haven't. It's kind of one of those things that you, it's, it's a pretty big, thick, crazy book. But yeah, I had there's it and I, I tried I, I tried one time and I would but you know, I was like uh, not right now. So, yeah, I, I think I read it back when I was uh, young and crazy, but uh, <laughs> maybe it was just a, a hallucination. Anyway, the, well, in I that book. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I, I would say that, you know, so you talked about the, 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 the Muslim idea of the war of all against all. I do think that the Christian vision of Gog and Magog. I mean, this just feels like such an eschatological moment. And it does seem that Gog and Magog, and I, I love how it's put, it's put so poetically. I don't know if the etymology is correct, but it does, would seem to be Gog and the mother of Gog, that these things in a Girardian way begat each other. The feud between the left and the right is this weird mutual doubling these twins, these monstrous doubles that Gerard speaks of that give rise to the sacrificial crisis, the moment where we have to find somebody to sacrifice. And I do think that right now, um, both sides have the potential. They're so angry. They're so bitter at each, bitterly angry at each other that the tendency towards scapegoating, whether it's China, whether it's, left, whether it's right, is such at such a fever pitch right now. Again, I can only see it as an apocalyptic moment. Yeah, it sure feels and like I don't know what we're, I don't I don't I don't know what we're going into. We're go, are we going to go into some kind of civil war scenario that's going to be the the precursor to 
uh, an overt oligarchical rule because we can't rule ourselves, the kind of uh, continuity of government that Peter Dale Scott has um, so well documented um, are, is the totalitarianism just going to basically come out into the open? Um, that, that could well be too. So we have two, you know, contending forces that, you know, we see in, in Greek tragedy contending and it's the, the anarchic, um, anomic forces, um, the kind of egalitarian feud, the Gog and the Gog. And then the tyrannical force, which is trying to counterbalance, and we 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 don't seem to have a balance between these two. The Greeks always said to worship the mean between these two forces, and we're in that Yeatsian moment where the center doesn't seem to be able to hold. It, it's a little bit reminiscent of the 1930s, with and in the 20s even to some extent, with the, the communism versus fascism thing where they were sort of mirror images of each other in certain respects these mass movements of of angry people sort of revolting against the bourgeois state and and uh it's yeah today today uh it seems that the uh, uh the left sees the right as a bunch of fascists and racists and uh the the right sees the left as communists um and sometimes it, it, you wonder how much difference there really is. And either way, the, yeah. the central bankers who are actually running the show and, and keep, I think, the, the big problems, the economic problems that are pushing working people to get so angry are the result of this grand larceny by private banking. And here's where, you know, the real model we should adopt from China is not their social control model. It's their state banking model. Well, and I'd be careful of that, too, because we now have a nominee to an important post of, in the Biden administration who's saying that we need to have. And so who's going to control the state bank is, is my question. And given the nature of our state right now, you know, we're, people who called Biden a Marxist, it's not Marxism. It's not communist that we're going, communism that we're going into. What it is is what Orwell predicted. It's um, a kind of communitarianism, oligarchical, oligarchical communitarianism, or um, oligarchical socialism, oligarchical communism. It's not anything that's, it's not Marx per se. Yeah, I've heard it described also as oligarchical collectivism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Because communism is supposed to get rid of the oligarchy. But if you keep your oligarchy and you go collectivist anyway, you know, you've got the worst of both worlds. Um, okay, well, I think we hit the final minute of our show. Uh, so, Tom, I, I have to highly recommend your letter to your family and friends on the biofascist threat to humanity. Again, it's it's one of the very best, if not the best, uh, pieces of writing I've seen on this topic. Just absolutely brilliant. And I, <laughs> I I knew I'd be seeing more great stuff from you. And I've, I haven't actually been paying close attention to your work for the past few years. And so this was uh, really wonderful to see. So congratulations on your new Substack, and uh, keep up the great work. And I hope to have you back again uh, much sooner. I, I think we, it, it's been like three or four years since, since we spoke and, and we should uh, keep in touch. Great, Kevin, I look forward to that. And hopefully you'll be seeing the 9-11 book before too long. Hey, well, keep me apprised of that. Okay, thanks, Tom. I will do. Okay.
Take care. Bye. It's Tom Bradenbach, author of A Letter to My Family and Friends, The Biofascist Threat to Humanity. We'll be back with Mona Sheikh, the <laughs> troublemaking comedian uh, in just a few minutes. I'm Kevin Barrett. You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. The website is truthjihad.com.